transition to our sermon and to, uh, to go from point A to point B, I have a little video clip I want to share with you all. Oh. <laughs> Bless you, my son. <laughs> uh, I would uh, just put this in my car. Oh, ever go to the symphony or if your wife ever drags you to the symphony, uh, one of the favorite things to do is watch the conductor. Always entertaining. They also have a very important role. So you have this whole symphony orchestra and many different people, many different instruments playing at different times, resting at different times, different volumes, and it's this music and then ultimately this conductor that brings all those pieces together and it orchestrates everything. That's where we get that word orchestrate. It comes from this notion of orchestra and all these many different pieces playing that, that music in perfect harmony. And in Acts 10 and 11, the chapters that we're focusing on this morning, we see God orchestrate events in great detail to, to give the church and us by extension now a hugely important point, a lesson that we have to learn and God is sovereign. He's in control. If anyone is capable of, of orchestrating things, it would be him. Now, I'm not always sure God, in each and every situation, uses his sovereignty to such great detail, but it certainly is the case for us today in the events that he orchestrated with Cornelius and with the Apostle Peter in an amazing way. So in Acts 10 and 11, you can turn there if you'd like and follow our story. We ask ourselves, who is this character, Cornelius? A good, strong name, Cornelius. It's my grandfather's name, though he often went by Neil. Many who were named Cornelius wouldn't even find that namesake here in the story. He was a Roman centurion, 
So a Roman citizen, someone involved in the military and as a centurion, would have been an officer of some repute and would have had uh, soldiers under his care and his supervision and at his command. And he was based in the city of Caesarea. Now, if you were a Jew living in Israel, Jerusalem was your capital and the holy city. But the Roman government had moved its place of power to a city that was relatively new, built by King Herod called Caesarea, and was an important port uh, and trade on the coast. And that was the, the seat of Roman power. So really, it shouldn't be a surprise that there would be somebody in this increased military presence like Cornelius there in the Roman headquarters of Judea, Caesarea. But interestingly enough, He was not just a Roman citizen or a centurion and a soldier here at the heart of Rome's power in Judea. He was a a God-fearing man, described by Luke in a very similar way to the Ethiopian eunuch that we met in Acts chapter 8. Cornelius was devout. He was generous, always giving alms to the poor, and he prayed constantly. And while he was a devout, God-fearing man who worshipped and followed this, this God that the Jews would worship and follow, he was not circumcised. Therefore, he was not a Jewish convert. He was still a Gentile in much the similar way to the Ethiopian. Despite being a Gentile, Cornelius does encounter God in an incredible way where God gives him a vision and a message from an angel. We can pick up our story in Acts 10, verse 3. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner whose house is by the sea. So something incredible happens in these verses. Cornelius, a Gentile, not a Jew, not circumcised, not ceremonially clean, not one of the chosen people of God. He's devout and he prays. And now an angel comes and confirms all your prayers have been heard. God sees you. God is mindful of you. In fact, the way that Luke chooses to describe this is in offering language. So this man, Cornelius, who is not allowed in the law and in the covenant to enter into the temple to participate in these offerings that are now a pleasing aroma to God, is through his own devotion to the Lord and through his own generosity and prayers, now they have ascended like an offering so that God is mindful of them. He has heard his prayers. God also gives Cornelius a very specific set of instructions. He wants him to send some men to the city of Joppa to find Simon Peter, the apostle of Christ. And so Cornelius, now I'm sure is very excited about what God is doing, gets up and obeys and sends two men and a soldier down to Joppa to to find Peter where he is staying. Now the story shifts. And a few days later in Joppa, Peter is up on the roof praying which in and of itself would have been fairly common. He's staying with a friend. There was probably a group of people in the home. He could go up onto the roof and have some privacy for his own prayers. And as he is praying, he is hungry. So hungry, he falls into a trance. (laughs) Have you been that hungry before? I remember the, the ad campaign that Snickers had a few years ago that said, you're not yourself when you're hungry. Grab a Snickers. In my household, we call it hangry when our kids turn into little tiny monsters when they haven't had enough to eat. Peter is giving us a new definition of food coma. Well, 
Hunger might not have been the actual reason for the trance, and we make light of it, but, but the hunger was still an important part of the vision that he sees. And so Peter then has this experience with God, and he is given a unique food-related vision from God, one of the only ones that I know of in the Bible. This is the vision in Acts 10, starting in verse 11. And Peter saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air, and there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times and the thing was taken up at once into heaven. <laughs> so here Peter is starving. They're, pre- they're preparing food for him down below. He can probably smell it. And then he's given this vision by God of this sheet coming down. And, and if you're thinking of this like a bed sheet, then you're truly reading this like a 21st century person. This was likely a sail for a boat. And it comes down from the four corners. Now, for all of you who were with me when we were learning about Revelation, the number four was significant. What did the number four often symbolize or represent? Does anyone remember? Come on. Anyone? Dad, you remember? What was that? No, not quite. That was a, that was a good guess, though. It talks about the four corners of the earth. Four is the symbol of creation. And so Luke is using Genesis language. He's using the number four to the four corners of the earth and all kinds of animals. He's saying all these animals and all of creation, all things in all creation now, God is doing something new and significant. I apologize for putting you on the spot, Dad. Actually, I don't. (laughs) Everything now. So Peter has all these options. He's famished, rise, kill, eat. But of course, so many of these animals in all of creation would be ceremonially unclean. It would violate the law for him to kill and to eat. And he's never done that before. So what in the world could this vision mean? We're told that Peter is inwardly perplexed becomes clear later on. And as Peter is wrestling and trying to figure out this vision, the three men sent by Cornelius arrive at that moment. And that would be great timing. What a coincidence or what evidence of God orchestrating events that during that time, these men would have had their journey. And then Peter would have that vision at that exact moment now to know how he can receive these men who are Gentiles sent by a Roman centurion. The Holy Spirit then tells Peter to go with these men because God has sent them. And so he invites them in and they spend the night in Joppa. And then the next morning they head on their way to Cornelius and Caesarea. And Peter leaves with the messengers from Cornelius and a number of other Jewish Christians follow with Peter to go and to be with him to see what happens next. And this group, this ragtag group full of Gentiles and Jews and Christians arrives in Caesarea to find Cornelius, but not just him. He's invited friends and family to come and hear what Simon Peter has to say. There's a crowd. There's a whole host of Gentiles. Now Peter truly understands the nature of his vision. Why did God say all these things that used to be common have been made pure? We get our answer. Peter finally understands in Acts 10, 28 and following. He said to the group of Gentiles, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. 
But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then, why you sent for me? So what was God teaching Peter? He was saying that in Jesus, now on the other side of the cross, things are different. Things have changed. These things that used to be impure are now made pure. Those things that were unclean are now made clean in Jesus Christ. What I have made pure, you must recognize as pure. And, and that initial vision was, was done with animals and, and was done with this idea of food. But now Peter understands it's not just eating with Gentiles. It's, it's, it's not just even going into their own homes that's allowable. It is all people who have the opportunity to be made clean and pure in Jesus Christ. And so where it would have formerly been against the law, against the rules for him to enter into that home and to eat with and to break bread with Gentiles, he does so knowing that God has done something significant and healed that divide. When he goes inside, Cornelius uh, recounts his own angelic vision. Again, a proof of God orchestrating events. And he asks Peter to share all that you have been commanded to share by the Lord. He wants to hear this message that has been being preached that's changing all of Judea as thousands come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And so Peter obliges and he shares the message of the good news of Jesus Christ. And this message then reaches its dramatic conclusion in verse 43. To Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Did you hear that, church? That everyone, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And as Peter is still saying these words, as they are escaping out of his mouth, they are met with this trust, with this belief. The Gentiles believe, and God responds. And the Holy Spirit is poured out onto those who heard these words and believed. I think it's a wonderful coincidence. No, I think it's a sign of God orchestrating events that we had Lilith here on her knees and we poured out this water as baptism, a, a symbol of what has happened not only here in Acts, where the Spirit is, is poured out onto those who believe, but a symbol that represents what has happened to Lilith and to you and to me and to all of us who have trusted in Jesus that the Spirit has been poured out on us as well. That's the promise. That's the gift. And that's what has happened in this story. And because the Holy Spirit has been poured out, there is this outward expression of all of these Gentiles now just speaking in tongues and praising God. And all of those people, those brothers of Peter, those other Jewish believers in Jesus that would have followed him now witnessed this event and they never expected this to happen. I mean, up to this point, to be a believer in Jesus was to be a Jew and believe that Jesus was the Messiah and the Son of God. It was all about being a Jew who believed in Jesus. And now there was the Gentiles who not only believed, but they saw the evidence of the Spirit. It was irrefutable proof. God had done something here. God had saved them, had rescued them, has poured out His Spirit on them. And this changes everything. This changes everything. It's irrefutable evidence. 
and what it is. It's the beginning of this full, complete, uh, um, this completement or this fulfillment of the Great Commission. When we started our series in Acts 1, Jesus said, I want you to go, my disciples, to Judea, to Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Well, what happened in Acts chapter 2? The Holy Spirit comes and pours itself out on the disciples, and they preach the good news of Jesus in Judea, and 3,000 people come to faith. In Acts chapter 8, Philip, one of the seven deacons of the church, is called to go to Samaria where he teaches the good news of Jesus and thousands of Samaritans come to believe in his name. And now in Acts chapter 10, Caesarea is not the ends of the earth, but a Gentile Roman centurion at the seat of Rome's power now believes and experiences the pouring out of the Spirit. And you know what is the ends of the earth? As far as the Roman Empire goes. This is the beginning of the ultimate fulfillment of the Great Commission. They were told this would happen, and it has happened in a very short period of time. And now for all of those who witnessed what God has done, the only proper response would be to offer believers baptism. Throughout all of Acts, they believed and were baptized. They believed and were baptized. Now these are Gentiles. They're, They're unclean. They're on the other side. But they believe. And now they've been baptized in the Spirit. Can anyone withhold baptism, Peter wonders. And of course not. God has already done it. They just need to symbolize it, what has already happened. And so they baptize these new Gentile believers in Jesus, and they stay with them in their house, living with them, teaching them for a few more days. During this time where Peter and his brothers stay and disciple them further, word of this event gets back to Jerusalem before Peter does. And so when he himself now goes back to Jerusalem to report what has happened, they've already heard, and there's a group of Jewish Christians called in Acts the Circumcision Party, and they're not pleased with Peter. It's a kind of a strange turn of phrase, circumcision party. It's not, it's not a party. You know, no one's got invited to it. It's, not, it's more of a political party. So even that would be kind of an odd you know, ad campaign. They might want to change their name and have a few more votes cast their way. And if you're not following any of this, if you're just like last week, if you didn't know what a eunuch was, talk to your parents. Well, if you're not sure what circumcision is all about, you can talk to your parents as well. They'd be happy to have that conversation over lunch. And this group of people, later on in, in, in the letters of, of uh, Paul in particular, they're called the Judaizers. And they're, they're just uh, uh, starting to come into being, really, in this story. And they are a group of Jewish believers in Jesus that believe in order to follow Jesus fully and completely, you also need to convert to Judaism and adhere to all aspects of the law. And so they are very upset that Peter would go and, 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 and go into a house full of, of impure, ceremonially unclean Gentiles and then baptize them without requiring that they convert to Judaism. They are unhappy of what Peter has done. But Peter calmly and very systematically starts from the beginning and he gives a whole account of how God beautifully orchestrated these events to prove the point of what he was doing. It started with Cornelius's vision where a Gentile had a vision from God and a message from an angel. God has heard his prayers. And then he, in obedience, sent those men to Peter's house. And and right as they arrived, Peter received his own vision from God, where God made it abundantly clear that, that Jesus had made things that were formerly impure to be pure. And then they they went at the urging of the Holy Spirit to Caesarea to meet with Cornelius and to preach the good news to those gathered there. And then they all, not just Peter, but even those who went with him, witnessed 
the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. There was no way that you could speak against what God had done. He had been crystal clear. There was no argument, which is why Peter's opponents were silent. This is what we read in Acts eleven eighteen. When they heard these things, they fell silent. And then they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. This is exciting news. This is good news. And the lesson learned by Peter and those that witnessed the events and those of the church that that heard this story later in Jerusalem, the lesson is crystal clear and it's the same for us today. The good news of Jesus Christ is for everyone. Did you hear me, church? The good news of Jesus Christ, the promise of the Holy Spirit, all that it entails is for absolutely everyone. The divide between Jew and Gentile had been erased by Jesus. That's what this vision meant. It, it takes this idea of purity, and it doesn't say that purity is, is not important. It doesn't mean that it doesn't matter if you're clean or unclean. It means that Jesus has fulfilled this, has redefined how purity works. Because if you lived under the old law and the old covenant, then, then impurity always trumped. So if you went to something that was unclean and you touched it, then that meant that you became unclean. And you would need to go and to, and to make sacrifices and be absolved and be made pure again. But now when Jesus comes and he is God made flesh and he is completely pure, what he does in his ministry is the opposite. When he would eat with someone impure and unclean, when he would touch someone impure and unclean, he did not become unclean, but they became pure. And now through the cross and through the death and the resurrection of Jesus and through the indwelling of his spirit, that remains true today, that we are now ambassadors of Christ and we have the opportunity to bring his purity and holiness and cleanness into the world. And that when we go, and we can go anywhere, knowing that his spirit goes with us, the clean, sorry, the unclean become clean, the impure become pure in Jesus Christ. No more divide. No more division. This is what the outpouring of the Spirit meant. That everyone would have this purity of Jesus and his Spirit. And, and, and Peter knows, this is, he says in Acts eleven fifteen. this is exactly like what happened to us at the beginning. Just as we were sitting in this room and the Holy Spirit descended upon us and was poured out on us, the same thing happened to the Gentiles. Everyone who believes has the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit abides with him. Peter declares that God shows no impartiality. There's no more Jew or Gentile, no more male or female, no more slave or free, no more denominations, no more social status. That doesn't matter. We are all one in Jesus Christ. We are all made pure in him. We are brought together by him. The good news of Jesus and the promise of the Spirit is for absolutely everyone. And so we don't have the same tension and, and division of, of Jew and Gentile, that distinction is not our context today. But this truth and this lesson remains the same. The, the good news of Jesus is for everyone. Now, what does that look like? Well, here at Stony Brook, we have a mission statement. And I love how, how Acts has really shown how our mission statement is, is a very biblical thing. So when it, when it came to learning about how they had everything in common, there was no needs, they were all of one heart and of one mind, we know that, that that's a perfect idea of what it means to be a spiritual family. 
And then in Stephen, we saw what an incredible example of, of, of being a devoted follower of Jesus looks like. And that's our end goal. And then now we see this divide between all people broken down, the gospels for everyone. And we describe it that we want to make sure that the overchurched and the underchurched are people that know that the good news of Jesus is for them. And to, to target these groups is not to be exclusive. It's the exact opposite. We want to say that there is nobody needs to fit a certain mold or have a specific story or, or, or understand a specific way in order to, to be connected to Jesus. Everyone deserves that opportunity. In other words, we want to be a place where people who often feel on the margins can meet Jesus readily. You are welcome here, and the good news of Jesus is for you. We don't talk about Gentiles a lot because we are all technically Gentiles. But there are always those who are on the margins, on the outside looking in, who feel like outcasts, especially when it comes to church. But it's not just Acts that teaches us this lesson. This was the focus of Jesus too. He spent a lot of his time with tax collectors, prostitutes, Samaritans, lepers, women, people who were on the outside of the social order looking in. People on the margins who were rejected by so many. In fact, the first person that Jesus revealed his messianic identity to was an often divorced Samaritan woman currently living outside marriage with another man. I love John 4. It's probably one of the passages I go to and cross-reference the most. It's a wonderful story. And he takes this woman that is ostracized, has no social standing, she has to go to the well by herself because not even the other women will give her the time of day. No one speaks to her. And Jesus says, you, you are the one that I want to reveal the identity of, of me being the Messiah to. This is what uh, we read in John 4, 25. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He is called the Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman because she was an outcast. But no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Jesus gave her value. He gave her the time of day. He listened, he talked, he loved, and he gave her a gift saying, you are the first one to know who I truly am. Go and tell the world. Jesus loved those on the margins. And so today, if you feel like you don't belong, if you feel awkward being here at church, feel like you don't fit in at school, have always been belittled or put down, I want to tell you this truth. The good news of Jesus is for you. He has no care in the world about keeping up your pretenses or appearances. He doesn't care how popular you are. He doesn't care what clothes you wear to church. He doesn't need you to fit a certain mold in order to be part of a religious community. He loves you just the way you are. He cares about you. He offers you relationship and community and the abiding of his own spirit. He offers you membership into his church and eternal life with him. If you are on the margins, the good news of Jesus is for you. I also think that if the good news of Christ is for everyone, it also has to be for those who feel broken. And it wasn't just the, the marginalized that Jesus reached out to, but the broken as well. Who else did Jesus spend time with? People who were demon-possessed, caught red-handed 
in the act of sinful adultery, adultery, dealing with chronic health issues, full of grief from losing loved ones, pained at the hardship of their lame or deaf friends, broken people, full of grief and hurt and sin and shame. Jesus spent a lot of time with those people. And when confronted by the Pharisees for doing this, Jesus makes a bold claim that the broken are not just people he puts up with. They are the exact reason he's here on earth. This is how Luke captures it in his gospel. Luke 5, verse 30 to 32. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? They're guilty, they're sinful, they're broken. And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus says, I came for the broken. I came for those who feel unworthy. I came for the unloved. That's why I'm here. So do you feel broken? Are you burdened by the weight of your sin and your shortcomings? Are you unworthy, physically unwell, brought down by grief and sadness? You are in the perfect place today. Anyone else have it all together here? I mean, am I the only one? <laughs> right? We gather as broken people in need of healing. We gather as sinners falling at the feet of Jesus, full of grace. The good news of Jesus is for you. In him, you can receive forgiveness of your sins, healing for your soul, and also eternal life with him. Lilith, I appreciate that you brought up this Japanese art of, of kintsugi or kintsukori. You both have the same, different names for the same thing. There's a picture here of this pottery. And when something is broken, they don't discard it. They put it back together with threads of gold. And the end result is something much more beautiful and priceless and valuable than it was before. We're all broken people. Some of this brokenness happens to us. Much of it is of our own making. And that's not the point. The point is that in Christ, we are brought back together, made new, made more beautiful and valuable than we were before. Our brokenness is not something that we reject. It's something that we're, makes, helps make us complete in Christ. The good news of Jesus is for everyone. Yet I'm well aware that so many of us that are gathered here together today have already responded to the good news of Jesus. You've, you've said, I am following him. I, I am seeking to be a devoted follower of his. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not on the margins. I fit in. I'm comfortable here. Uh, I don't always feel broken. I know I have forgiveness in Christ. What does this message have to do with me? Well, I'm glad you asked. I think my favorite part of all of this is what Peter says when he is called to task with this uh, Judaizing group and he's defending himself. He points to the evidence of God pouring out his spirit on the believers uh, the, that were Gentile. And he, and he says this in Acts eleven seventeen, And this is the key for those who are, are churched people. He says, If then God gave the same gift to them that he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Who was I? What else could I do? That's our question today, church. Who are we to stand in God's way? If he loves everyone, if the good news is for everyone, who are we to get in the way of that? And yet my heart breaks at the so many stories of where the church of Jesus Christ gets in the way of Jesus Christ, right? 
for those times when someone's son is not calm enough to carry a candle on Christmas Eve. To those stories that I heard from a coworker of mine that will have nothing to do with Jesus because of the abuse that she received at a Christian school as a teenager. To my brother who, at a very formative time in his life, wanted community and found in the church judgment and condemnation, so he found community somewhere else. Who are we to get in God's way? Can we do this differently? We have to. We have to. The good news of Jesus is for everyone. He is pursuing people. Right? He, is, he is pursuing them. He is loving them. And he is pouring out his spirit on all. And they don't have to fit a mold. They don't have to look a certain way or act a certain way or have their life together. And when people walk through these doors, will they be welcome? And church, the answer has to yes, be yes. Now, today, forever, tomorrow, always be yes. Are people welcome here? The marginalized and the broken need to be here even more than you do because this is a hospital and it's for the sick. But not only that, I want to finish with this thought. Do we wait for those people to come here, to approach us, to be willing to come to church, or are we willing to reach out to them? Who in your life needs to hear the good news of Jesus? Who in your life is just caught in brokenness and on the outside looking in. Don't wait for them to come to you. Don't wait for them to say, hey, I'd love to come to your church. Don't wait for them to walk through these doors. This message is still a good message. It is still the good news. It still needs to go to the ends of the earth. And it starts with you today and tomorrow and the day after. Let's pray. Father God, we are so incredibly grateful for the love that you show. For this preemptive love that you didn't wait for us to get our stuff together. That you didn't wait for us to, to, to figure it out. You didn't wait for us to, to even turn to you. you. You sent your son to die on the cross for our sins, to offer us forgiveness for our sins, even when we had our backs turned to you. God, I pray that we would be forever grateful for that gift of grace and mercy and forgiveness and life found in you. And that we would never, never be at, at the risk of keeping this good news to ourselves and, and never run the risk of getting in the way of you pursuing others. But that we would reach out to those on the margins, those that are broken and sick, and that we would say, we have good news for you. And God, may we too celebrate as we see your spirit poured out on others that they too have received this gift of forgiveness life in you. We pray this in your name. Amen.